they all have a culture, but the ones that you feel, you can almost taste them when you walk into their offices, they've enunciated them. They've crystallized them and enunciated, again, those values, that purpose. And you get a sense that this company knows what it's doing and where it's going and everyone's on board with that. And that's who you want to do business with, right? That's who you're going to trust. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 238 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. And yes, I'm really excited. Finally, back to our regular episodes, looking ahead into the future. Yes, I know COVID-19 is not done and dusted. It's still out there. It is still affecting all of us and our businesses and our clients and our beautiful country. But let's start looking up and ahead. So let's talk today about converting client relationships because getting potential clients to talk to you is one thing. But how do you convert them into actual clients? Here's Melissa Donnelly, who you met in March before the lockdown which now feels like a lifetime ago. Here's Melissa with some insights about how to convert client relationships. Converting conversations to client relationships. Yeah, I think this is really hard because the first thing is actually the client becoming aware of you, either through your marketing department or maybe another colleague recommended you for example a best agent recommends a tax agent or something else that's the first step but then the second step is actually converting that first contact into a client relationship yeah and I think some people find this a lot easier than others and that tends to be people will say oh such and such is an extrovert or such and such is a natural born salesperson and I tend to think of cocktail parties when you go to a cocktail parties there are always some people are really like a fish in water they go from group to group and they have great conversations half of the people they know they're <laughs> at least half of them are their friends and then there are others who really struggle to find somebody to talk to And I think the people who are really good at cocktail parties are also much better at converting from a first contact to a client than mm. people who struggle at cocktail parties. I can imagine they also struggle at the conversion. Yeah, it's an interesting analogy because a lot of people would say, well, if you're not the person to enjoy the cocktail party, don't go. Some others will say, you've just got to force yourself to because you don't go to the cocktail party. You're not, you're not on the scene. You're not going to do, you're not going to do anything. You're just going to sit at your desk. The other way to think about it too is the cocktail person, the I call them ultra extroverts, ultra extroverts are often quite narcissistic. So they'll often go to a cocktail party, they'll have a great time, they'll take lots of business cards but know nothing about the people they've spoken to because they've been really busy talking about themselves. So a lot of people they're who often seem great to be storytellers. They're often really great storytellers. Great storytellers, entertaining, make you laugh. Yeah. So even though that person doesn't know anything about me, I still love I still love him or her. Yeah. Because they make me feel happy. But if we think about a client relationship and we go back to what we said at the start, the client has to come first. So if you're at the cocktail party taking up all of that verbal real estate talking about yourself, how on earth have you worked out 
if they've got a problem and what solution they're looking for. So I think if there's, and there is a process around the engagement, whether it's a social engagement or a one-to-one business engagement, there's actually a very similar process you can go through that if you're inherently a person who talks about themselves, and I am, so I know exactly what I'm saying here, if your person inherently tends to slip into that storytelling, talk about yourself, happy-go-lucky guest at a cocktail party, or on the flip side, you're somebody that finds those engagements extremely uncomfortable and you kind of feel like you're just selling stuff and and out of place go back to the process and it will tend to bring you into a space where you can engage in your way with another person and I've seen lots of people who are either an introvert extrovert mix or are introverts do really really well with client engagement but they have to use the process in the way that works best for them. And they know that they're comfortable knowing that, no, they're not going to be the life of the party, but they might be the person standing in the corner talking one-on-one to somebody that'll turn out to be the firm's biggest client in three years' time. And they'll be the one servicing it because that client is also an introvert or that client was being asked questions and felt that they were valued and their problem was being understood and their problem was being discussed and a solution was being discussed. So I think it's more about it is a process of conversion and you don't need to think everybody thinks you're getting into this grubby world of sales and the dark hole of marketing, the dark side as everybody calls it. Really it's about if you believe in the business you're working for, believe in the purpose that you are there to, to exist for or to work for, then really you're just having a conversation about business. And if we go back to our theme here of, you know, where a firm, you know, gets joy out of business, we love the business of business, then your conversation at the cocktail party, no matter if you're an introvert or the extrovert, the extrovert might share some more stories about the joys of business and the not so funny bits of business and and all of that, and at the same time be looking for the nods, looking for the nonverbal cues from the people they're talking to. The introvert might be asking questions of the person in the corner they're chatting to about, so what do you like about business? What don't you like about business? Well, this is the stuff we like, but they're both authentic conversations. They both feel comfortable. You're not standing there going, I've got to sell you. I've been in business for a long, long time. So I used to be in rooms in the 80s where we used to almost do matrix networking. You know, you'd walk around with your business cards and charge up and down a room and and you were judged by how many cards you managed to get out. There were no meaningful conversations in that. And I've learned over the years, I might have one conversation. That one conversation may change the future of my business. And I think the attitude has completely changed and it has already changed for a while. I remember that a friend of mine wrote a book and he's a real estate agent and he wrote a book and that the title of the book was Stop Selling. And the gist of the book was basically Don't Sell. I'm sorry, I phrased it. Yeah, no, absolutely no, right. Basically, the moment the moment somebody feels sold to, they get scared. Yeah, yeah. It's not the way we make decisions now. You know, the decision-making funnel that we've talked about We make three quarters of our purchasing decision about anything before we want to interact with the company that we may end up buying from. doesn't matter what you're in. 
We will go to websites over nine times on average. Hence the website is so important. Absolutely. I don't want to deal with the salesperson. None of us want to deal with salespeople. Mm. We just want to make these decisions and we feel we're armed with enough information from other sources that we're not relying on that one buyer salesperson. It's thinking about, well, what's our process of engaging with the client? That's why I love firms bringing in user experience managers because that's their sole reason for being is to think, how can we make this experience a delight for the prospect and a delight for the customer and how can we help keeping them come back? They're not thinking about how can I get an extra hundred bucks out of the client or how can I get an extra project out of the client? If they're good at what they do, they're genuinely thinking about what is the experience this customer is having in dealing with us at the start, in the middle, and possibly the end. So and I go back to in that engagement process, whether it's it's happening online from your website, whether it's happening with you speaking at an event, whether you are at, hate the term networking events, you're at a gig. Social events. Party, social events, writing something. Go back to the three questions. What's the problem that this reader or person that's coming to me or dealing with me is having? What solution are they wanting and why are they going to buy it? from me. So you start from there and then there's a process in terms of what's the engagement look like once they're starting to really evaluate their options. So you may have a meeting with them or you're having a phone call. I never pick up the phone and have a phone call without a little bit of a LinkedIn look, a little bit of a social media look, I go onto the website of the company they work for. I just do, it can take five minutes to do a little bit of research to say, I know what you look like. I know that the company that you're working for is based in Perth, but you're located in Brisbane. So that must mean you've got that sort of head office, satellite office tension going on. Just a few things to put away in my brain. This morning I knew I was flying to Sydney, so I do read the Sydney Morning Herald regularly, but I just checked out what was going on in case there was something big down here that was going to make this conversation more relevant for, you know, listeners who are Sydney-based. So you prepare for the meeting, even if it's five minutes beforehand, and then I never leave a meeting if I can avoid it without some reason to reconnect. I've met someone at a cocktail party and people don't carry business cards now, which drives me crazy. I'll go, sorry, can I just get your name again so I can make sure I connect with you on LinkedIn afterwards? Or, hey, yeah, I did read that article. How about I send you a copy? Just another reason to engage, just another reason to connect with that person one-on-one afterwards. So we've dealt with the masses. Now I'm talking to you because I really want to do something with you. I'm not selling to you. I just really feel I can solve a problem for you. And then think through as a firm, but then as an individual, what's your client engagement process? Do you provide proposals? Do you provide scopes of works? How do they look? How does your brand shine in those documents? Do they reiterate the key takeouts from whatever that initial engagement's been? One of my practices is in proposals is brief on a page. So I'll have in some cases where we're actually putting together a a formal proposal and scope and estimates, et cetera, I'll have taken briefs and I might've taken them from the board and I may have taken a bit from the CEO or whatever. I'll restate that on a page just to ensure from the very start of that proposal that if I've got it wrong, that's going to be picked up at the get-go and we can readjust, we can take it back, we can work with it, or they're going, okay, well, this assumption has been made and I will read the rest of this document from there. My style is keep it short. If I can do the whole thing in in two pages, I will. What I've found generally, certainly in my experiences, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a, my business model is that of a practice. 
are if I've got to go through rounds and rounds of proposals, I'm not going to win the business. If I haven't heard about the business before it hits my desk, so if a tender hits my desk, I don't even reply because and respond to it. I might politely decline. If I didn't know it was coming, I don't stand a chance of winning it because I haven't influenced the tender. I, I obviously have no relationship with the person supplying the tender. There's another great book written by an ad guy and it's called The Win Without Pitching Manifesto. Big believer in that. So that's all about the fact, a bit like your real estate agent mate, if you're out there pitching and having to invest thousands of hours in putting together massive documents and massive pitches and all the rest of it, it's probably a fashion parade. You're probably not going to win anyway. And guess what? Lawyers don't go out with that approach. Professional services people don't. Ad agencies, marketers, we tend to think we have to, that we've got to scramble and pitch and win that business all the time. It's just a, a mindset in our industry and I think it can become a bit of a mantra. So, so again, think about what your engagement process is. I think pitching is, yeah, as you just said, I don't think accountants, professional services no, go through they pitching value processes. Themselves too so highly. there it really comes down to relationships. Yeah, yeah. So it might be as simple as have the meeting and then phone call follow up afterwards and say, we're on, fantastic. Um, again, I, I know I've made decisions on accounting firms in, in, in minutes based on somebody said they're really good. Great. Pick up phone, call, good, done. I want that contract from you real quick because I want to start now now and I want to get all my paperwork over to you straight away. So the next thing, which is part of the engagement process, and I think this is where sometimes companies miss the trick, is what I call the onboarding process. So again, tech companies use it, but you've got them hooked. They've accepted your proposal verbally. How do you onboard them? So what's the formal process for that? But also what's the 90-day sprint? What, what are you going to do in the next 90 days to delight the client, for them to reassure them they've made the right decisions? In fact, what are you going to do in the next seven days? And that might be as simple as saying, oh, yeah, you know, I talked about that research paper. Well, we have a copy of it. You know, you can't get it. It's not freely accessible everywhere, but I'll give you a copy. We're really grateful for your business. I think you'll find this of interest. It could be something small like that, or it could be, you know, that really big problem you came to us with that you needed fixed urgently. Done. Done. So... What's that initial seven days look like? What does 90 days look like? And that should be mapped out. That really should be mapped out with milestones. You may not necessarily share all of it with the client. You don't want to overcommit. But it's like, what are you and the team going to do in the next 90 days to make a difference? And then what's the retention plan? So if you're going, okay, to go back to our objective as you know, part of our strategy is that we are going to convert project clients to long-term retained clients, well, what's the retention plan? So we, you know, this with CRM systems can help, but just basic internal communications go, well, this project is due to wrap in June. So end of May, early June, are we taking the client to lunch? Is one of the partners going to give them a call and have a chat to them, talk about, you know, how's everything going? What's next? Again, it's not selling. It's just making sure that they're aware that if they've got other things that you can help them with, that you can help them with. There's nothing worse than somebody going, I didn't know you could do that. So I went to the other accounting firm. I mean, I've, that's happened to me in my business. And it just about breaks my heart. It's like, really? I didn't tell you that? Actually, no, I didn't tell you that. I just had my head down doing my work. So that's a fail. I think what you just said is very good. Aim mm. the onboarding, focus on the first seven days, focus on the following 90 days, have a yeah. plan. But also the retention. 
a lot of us, even financial advisors, but definitely tax agents and accountants in general, we're very lucky that we have a recurring business. Mm. Um, tax returns come around every year. Best comes around every three months or even every month. So that is lucky. But especially when you have clients who you basically just service once a year for their tax return, for example, retention is an important point. Really? Talk to them certain points during the year so that they don't hear from you for 12 months because the longer they haven't spoken to you the greater the risk that they run into somebody at a cocktail party and yeah. fall in love or again they go they're troubled by something new like we spoke about this you can't yes. guarantee a client and then for life so they're troubled by something new they are not top of mind exactly or they are troubled by somebody they meet somebody at a cocktail party he gives them a solution he's actually really nice maybe we should give him a try yeah exactly and or i didn't know my guys did this work so I'm going to this person. And again, you know, the, yes. the crossover that I've observed, um, and I know there's a, there's a lot of legislation around this, but this, this to me crossover where you've got accounting and then you've got financial services offers, to me that's a classic nexus where you've got, so yes, example right. two firms, so you've got a pure accounting firm, so you've got a pure accounting firm and you've got client Bob's with the pure accounting firm. Bob's at a cocktail party and he's worried about, uh, his asset protection. So he's chatting away to some Sean. person. Sean, let's call Sean. Sean's firm has not only accounting but fin planning and Sean can talk to him about asset protection. So Bob goes, oh, well, I'll get you to do my fin planning stuff. And then call the brilliant Trojan horse strategy because yes. you ship your fin planning team in and then you quietly go, Oh, Bob, we happen to do tax and everything else as well. And he goes, may as well stay in the one house. Trojan horse, done. Guess what? Firm one is gone. And that is absolutely golden, very smart on the part of Sean, but it leaves you in the dust. So that's why there's you've got to think about what you need as a business to keep those clients engaged. What solutions are they looking for? And if they want a whole of business solution, like that earlier firm I talked to you about, he wants all of you. He wants to own every part of you that even touches assets, finances, your future, anything. I reckon if he could sell you real estate out of his accounting firm, he probably would if it made sense. I mean, that's how he thinks. And you get that sense from the minute you walk in and the arms are almost wrapped around you. So that's you, the guy you don't want your client meeting at a cocktail party because he will take your business. And when you look at the top 100 accounting firms or when you look at firms that are doing really well, it is those full service firms who can offer a full palette of services to, yeah, yeah. to the client. And that's really challenging for practices so they're not they're not agencies or firms they're, they're a practice they might be soul man band or, or whatever so it's almost in that environment I would be saying think about where you shine and the subject matter expertise or specialty that you have that's going to give you an advantage in a niche play because you'll never compete against people that are going the full service offer you're not sized for it you don't have scale for it you don't have the expertise for it you could kill yourself trying to be there so this is where you need to make those decisions about differentiation etc the mid tiers the, the interesting thing for them is again a lot of them are doing the, the full service offer and, and doing it extremely well but the big boys big end of town are also starting to play they're coming further down yes, the, the funnel that. and size wise so 
it's a case of that's the cocktail party where your client gets wowed and goes, oh, really? You'll deal with my size of business? Excellent. This mm. is really appealing. I didn't think PwC would be interested in me. Yes, but they are. Heaven help me. You know, they may not be in 12 months or two years, but I'm going to take this now. And I get all these research papers and value adds and management consultants and big offices and coffees and all the rest of it. So as much to lose you know, single man or single practice area to lose to a multidisciplinary firm, for the multidisciplinary firm to lose to the big end of town. Again, you know, you've got to have, when you're thinking retention strategies, it's like, I always say, don't get obsessed by your competition because you can't control what they're doing, but you can certainly be very alert, not alarmed to what they're doing. And thinking about from a retention perspective, where are the obvious competitors or where are the obvious threats to my business but where are the left to field ones like the big end of town that I didn't even consider because I've grown to a point where I'm starting to butt up to their business or the market is is causing them to come down and look into my space so that retention plan should be enunciated and if it's not in the form of a UX manager then how is it enunciated by the leadership of the firm? And then how are they enunciating that so it makes sense to everybody else who's touching those those clients? And one thing I talk about, and you can formalise this through CRM, but it just, I think, needs to be a mindset. It's really important to have a single truth on your customer, a single view on your customer. So when you're looking at any particular client of your organisation, who do they deal with? How many touch points do we have? You never want a single point of failure. So you never want to have a client owned by one person in your firm because one person leaves. So does your client guaranteed. So, you know, how many touch points do we have? Do we know much about this client? So really trying to sort of, you know, get a slice through and the big database companies sort of look at this all the time and and it's a constant problem for the big telcos. How do we get a single truth on that client rather than going, oh, there are mobile client and they're a ISP client and they're a streaming client and in the, in the case of an accounting firm they're a tax client or they're financial planning client no they're not they're your client so how do we see them and how much do we know about them and really to have that single truth so you're looking at a single client all the time you're not looking at who are the clients in our tax practice who are the clients in our this practice? Because you won't see where they cut across. And so the single truth is also about the software so that when you go into your dashboard and you bring the client up, you have all the information about the client. You don't have to go into different systems to see what they're doing tax-wise, to see what they're doing business advice related, etc. that you have everything together. Absolutely, absolutely. You have the history you can go crazy. You can have bespoke CRM systems that do all that, but there are systems where I think you can, so with your CRM systems, I think you can have enough of a view, even if it's a little freebie CRM, where you can go, or even manually, even if you export your LinkedIn contacts onto Excel, you can still go, when did I last interact with them? When do I plan to interact with them next? What services of my firm are they using? So it doesn't need to be hugely sophisticated and it's still thinking of Bob Smith and not getting Bob Smith mixed up with Barbara Smith getting mixed up with David Jones. You know, it's it's saying, who's Bob Smith? Oh, he happens to be married 
to Barbara. She's also a client. So you're still developing a single point of truth around Bob, but you're understanding all those interconnections and things. It just takes some care and attention. But again, it takes a mindset that you don't have a business without your clients. You said something else. This single truth should show you how many touch points you have with that mm, client. Mm. And then you said that if you only have one touch point, then meaning the client only communicates with one staff, then of mm. course when that staff leaves, the client leaves. Hence, you should always have several touch points with the client. Mm. And what you probably mean is that the client should deal, for example, with the business advisor, with the accountant, and with a uh, estate planning lawyer mm. for example so have mm. several people who serve this client so that when one leaves you still have the relationships with the other staff members yeah yeah absolutely so again I call it a single point of failure it doesn't matter on the size of the business so if you've got a bigger team servicing a bigger client where you've got so I talk about even at the client end of the equation who's our senior client contact because As somebody who services clients, I don't want a single point of failure on their side either. So who's my senior client contact? Who are my senior client or client influencers? Who's my backup? Where's my redundancy plan? So I will, as a consultant to business, and I have I run a virtual organisation, so I have different agencies that work with me, we will all map our touch points. So, so I will have a single map, if you like, on that particular client saying, okay, well, the social media agency deal with these five people, The I'm the primary contact for the senior client lead, but if I'm away, my graphic designer who knows the client really well, they will deal with the senior client for this period. So we're constantly looking at that. And I will map, and I have the luxury, I guess, with my model of doing it, I will map the agency to the client as well. So I'll say, what's the right skill set here? What's the right mix in here? So I'll be very deliberate with that. And that's exactly the way you should think as an accounting firm. So even if you don't, it may not even be a touch point within your firm, but it's somebody you've referred the client to, like an estate planning lawyer. Yeah, again, that's, that is a valuable touch point and just gives you some redundancy. And also, again, you map out and say, well, I should call that lawyer and just check in. Oh, have you finished that estate plan for Bob? Obviously, there's confidentiality, but, you know, how's things going? Are you finding any challenges or whatever? Can I help you? So it's about saying, I, I really want to own this client, not in a power and control or possessive way, but I want to own this client to make sure that everything's getting sorted through. If they can't come to me for whatever reason because they need another specialist skill set, that I've referred them to that specialist skill set. So I have a relationship with that specialist skill set, so I'm not going to lose the client through the back door. Touch points, really important, not hard to map. Again, should all be part of your retention strategy with the client. This process of converting a client from a first contact to actually becoming a client. Mm. And you basically have decision points above the water. If you kind of think of a floating on the water, you yeah. have decision points above the water that I'm conscious of that are basically right brain decisions. Mm. But then underneath, submerged in water, underneath the surface, 
a whole lot of other decision points that I'm not aware of that are just as important. And the decision points above the water are basically is basically the question, can you help me? Mm. So the question is, is, what do you offer? Is that relevant? Do you have the competence to deliver a solution? Are you capable of delivering a solution? And so on. Mm. I'm conscious of all these questions and mm. my decisions on it. But underneath the water is the question of, do I like you enough to help me? And then it comes down to, social proof you know what do other people think about you personal appearance brand appearance aura personal charisma all mm. those things come underneath the water and of course the, the bits underneath the water i think are a lot more difficult to influence some people just have it naturally and it all comes through and then other people struggle a lot more with those decision points underneath the water And I think uh, you'll hear the phrase culture talked about a lot. There's a cultural alignment. So I feel good about doing business with you because you seem to get me. And if you try and ask, well, why? What about that resonates? People will start to talk about culture. And I recently... And it's probably more a feeling. When you like a company, you can't say, I like their culture because A, B, C, D. You just have a feeling that you like them. Yeah, so it goes back to that point that really brand is about the feeling people have when they interact with you. And that's why it's not just your logo. It's not just your color palette. It's not just the typeface you use in your emails. It's about the people you recruit. You're recruiting around a particular set of values. And the way they talk, the way they dress everything yeah and you'll know it you walk into particular companies and they have incredibly strong cultures there's you can't create culture you can't put a bunch of beanbags in the corner of the room and suddenly have a really cool hip culture you hire certain people and they fit and they will express your culture they'll express your culture in the way they behave any organization has a culture the one-man accounting practice has a culture yeah Yeah. It might not be a culture that the clients like. It might not be the culture he wants. Every organization, every accounting practice, every business has a culture. Yeah. The ones that I think are the most potent and compelling, the ones that we want to be with, are the ones where they're clear about it. And you can have an accidental culture. It's like you can have accidental communications. Let's avoid that. So have a culture that's clear. Again, I'm a mood board person. You know, my culture around I'm very clear about the businesses that I do business with so that the agencies that I bring in and trust with my clients that I have chased and fought for and defended and advocated for I've got to be damn sure that you line up with the values that I hold true around servicing those clients being honest with those clients being authentic challenging them all the rest all of the values that I hold they don't need to be your values But you need to line up with those values as a, as a business yourself or we ain't going to fly for the client. I'm really clear. I have those listed even for my business. So I think the businesses where, yes, they all have a culture, but the ones that you feel, you could almost taste them when you walk into their offices, they've enunciated them. They've crystallized them and enunciated in those values, that purpose. And you get a sense that this company knows what it's doing and where it's going and everyone's on board with that. And that's who you want to do business with, right? That's who you're going to trust with your business. So below the water, I guess there are a lot of subconscious decisions, I guess is what you're saying. And they are about feeling, but those feelings are quite tangible. So 
if you can distill those from your perspective as the, the firm, the client will feel those. So you're not delivering them. You're not building and creating a culture because you kind of can't, again, you can't throw a bunch of beanbags in and say, we're going to be a really hip, cool accounting firm if at the end of the day you're hiring super conservative staff or you're going, well, we're only going to hire people over 60 because they're more experienced, but we want to be really hip and cool and young. That's a dissonance. No number of beanbags is going to change that culture because you're hiring for one thing and trying to be something else that you're not really comfortable with. So enunciate what those values are and the meaning they have, and then you bring people in and onboard your staff. Because they are, they are your ambassadors. They are representing your business every time they open their mouths, put their clothes on in the morning, get to work either caffeine-fueled or not because you've got a much more chilled, mellow kind of vibe in your office. So we develop when we're doing brand work, even for the smallest of companies, we will have even if it's a little mini brand manual, but in that brand manual it expresses our values, our vision. It talks about what the brand means for us, what type of brand personality that we have as an organisation. And that's part of your little onboarding as a staff member. It may not be with an HR person, it may not be a big departmental thing, but it, it just clearly says to you, welcome on board you've made the right decision to join us and here's the great place that it's going to be to work in and here's the great vision we have for where we're going. Who doesn't want to work for that? And if your staff feel like that, guess what they're communicating to the client at the cocktail party or the barbecue? Exactly the process you described just for staff should also be for onboarding a client. The moment they become a client, they should receive communication onboarding information etc exactly they should feel like there's a clear process i'm going through they know where i'm going yeah exactly and that's that thing of you know and i always say trust is really it's just the gap between your expectations and the reality of what you get right so i never want people to talk about well we're going to build trusted partnerships it's like saying i really value your relationship with me enunciating it doesn't make it true so if people are coming and they generally are in a professional services environment they very much are with accountants this is not their space this is your space so guiding them through which is that onboarding process taking them on a step-by-step very clearly enunciated path towards the solution that you're going to deliver for them they will feel comfortable they will feel trust because their expectations and what you're delivering are one and the same, ideally. The same for staff, you know, always have a three-month conversation with a new staff member. Have we met your expectations? What did you expect when you started with us? Have we met that or are we under-delivering or over-delivering, which would be great? So same with the, the client and that will reassure them, made the right decision. These people respect me they respect the business I've brought to them. They value this business. So they're not, you don't need to tell them that. You just do it. You live it make it happen. So processes like that, they're not exciting. They're not sexy, but my God, they're valuable. And again, if you want to build that business with that client, so you're not having to be the hunter all the time, if you want to be the gatherer, that sets you up beautifully because then the next step of your process is when do we interact next? You have your map of your touch points and say, actually, we need to get the partner now to give that client a call. They've been with us three months. We've done our 90 day sprint partner just gives a call they may never have dealt with that partner but the partner gives them a call and says how's it all going have we delivered have we met your expectations how powerful is that so I've had one man band accountants do that because they are the partner but I've never had an accounting firm 
ever call me and say, have we met your expectations? How are we doing? Which is a really brave thing to do because I may say, actually, not all brilliant, but at least you as the firm know and I've been heard as your client. I can tell you now, if that did happen, there would be firms that I'd be rusted on forever with because I'm being hurt and it's not hard to do so yeah definitely guided process definitely welcome back I like Melissa's creation of the phrase solution sale selling products selling specific services just confuses our clients They don't want to know about Division 7A or franking deficit tax or SG charges or whatever the issue is. They just want a solution. And so we need to offer a solution, not a product. In the next episode, episode 239, Melissa Donnelly will talk about content marketing. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. <music>